Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join our preacher for the message. You know, we sing and know God's grace is amazing, right? But what continues to amaze me so much about God is, again, the mind and the wisdom of God. I never cease to be amazed by the way He plans and purposes everything to happen in the world using the will and the hearts of men and women to accomplish all those purposes down to the most finite of details. Uh, He even used the traitor in the midst of the company of the Son of God to accomplish the plan that is the gospel of God. Two men from history have names that are synonymous with the word and the idea of traitor. If you know your American history, one was a successful soldier and officer in the time of the American Revolution in the War for Independence. He became a general and then something went wrong. Thoughts of compromise in his heart ate away at his patriotism. He was greedy, and soon the unthinkable happened. He offered his services to the British, and in 1780, he devised a plan in which to surrender West Point, the operation of the army, to British control. He was caught in that conspiracy. He was executed. Historically, instead of being remembered as a national hero, we know him as Benedict Arnold. You may have heard that before. Someone is a traitor, betrays someone. You say, oh, you're a Benedict Arnold. Does anyone remember that besides me? Anyone else study American history? Go that far back? Okay. But who is the elder? Who is the greatest of all? Benedict Arnold. He participated in the plot and the conspiracy to murder the greatest person who will ever live and has ever walked the face of the earth. There's a hint. He has a name that no one uses, no one has ever named a child this name that I am aware of, and it is none other than Judas. We talked about his conspiracy last time, introduced it, his plan with the religious leaders to get rid of Jesus. Judas Iscariot was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them, and when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Here's that opportunity. We're doing a reset here. We're in the Passion Week now. The home stretch. Passion means suffering in this contest. Okay? Perusia. And it is of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Gospels, let me tell you, the Gospels and the life of our ministry, of our Lord, could not be contained in the Gospels. John even tells us that. He did in way more in his ministry as Messiah that can be recorded. But the bulk of what is recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is this section, is the Passion Weekend, those events. And the simple reason is that makes up what we call the good news, gospel concerning Jesus. And the conclusion of the news is the greatest news in the history of the world. And that is that God made a way For lost people, sinners, rebels of God to be right with Him. 
to be reconciled into a right relationship with Him. And this weekend we're looking at gives us the how, the what, and the why. We know where, and it's here. So we're going to begin to unpack now from this text the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's going to be a great time together here in this section because this is the turning point of human history, folks. It starts here where we're going to break down this text in half, two parts. We're going to talk about the preparation for the Passion and then the prophecy of the Passion. Let's start with the preparation. It starts in verse 12. And on the first day again of unleavened bread, which they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare to eat the Passover? This process of preparation actually begins with a question we can answer from the Old Testament. The book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers 28, for instance, we've been reading in our BRP plan this week. They give us this history from the Torah, the law of Moses. And the Jews referred to the day of the Passover as the first day of the week of unleavened bread. And that occurs in the Jewish calendar in the middle of the month of Nisan, the 14th day of Nisan. Kind of sounds like Nisan. And uh, this preparation day of Passover is on a Thursday of the Passion Week. It's the day going into the evening when the lambs were first sacrificed, and then the actual Feast of Unleavened Bread would follow that for seven days. And, and you might wonder, if you noticed in verse 1 of the chapter, how can it be Thursday of the Passover week if it says there it's two days away before Good Friday, and that is, without getting too technical, there are two calendars at that time that were being followed, a Galilean one, a Judean one, that like the Romans used. And so one was sunrise to, to sunrise, the other was sunset to sunset. So the days were counted a little bit differently. So they overlapped these two days where on the evening they would have the roasted lamb at the meal and then sacrifice a lamb at the temple the next day. Okay? Now the Lord in Deuteronomy 16 specifically stated they could not eat the meal just anywhere they wanted to. On the day of Passover, they would need to come to Jerusalem if they could get there. And they would need a place to eat, verse 13. And Jesus sent two of his disciples. Luke identifies them, by the way, as Peter and John. And he said to them, go in the city, and a man carrying a jar of water or a pitcher will meet you. Follow him. Now, that's interesting because it says, Jesus in Matthew's account says, my time is near. He adds that. I will keep the Passover with my disciples at my house. And you see again the sovereign hand of Christ here in action, behind the scenes. He's directing all this. He's connecting the right people at the right time in the right place, just like he did in chapter 11 when he had them find the donkey that he would ride on into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday at the beginning of this Passion Week. And the disciples are told to follow this man, probably of another follower, and they're just to go into his house and say, okay, where's the room we're going to use to have our Passover? It's just very direct to the point. The Lord has set this up in advance. Somehow he's moved supernaturally in the heart of this man. And get this little historical thing. He is marked out so the disciples can find him in Jerusalem because he's carrying a pitcher of water. Why is that significant? 99% of the time, only women would carry water in the city. So this man is carrying a pitcher as a marker for them to find him and follow him into his home. 
and this is all under the radar, okay? Jesus does this intentionally this way because this way Judas is not going to know the room in advance and be able to alert the authorities of where they're having the supper, and this avoids him being arrested at the supper. Jesus has a timetable for everything that has to happen here. It's very precise. He has to eat the Passover with his disciples and fulfill all righteousness like he did with his baptism. That's the law. He's still under the Jewish law observing it. Food for thought, by the way. This certain guy called by the Lord just obeys without hesitation and offers up his home. How are we doing with that? The role that the Lord may give us, the call he may give us to steward or manage in ministry what he wants to use for ministry. Maybe it's your home. Maybe to open up your home to a meeting. Maybe it's your car, finances of some sort. We just have to be ready to give when he calls. Then verse 15, and he will show you a large room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. So the upper room is going to be upstairs. A lot of these homes had a ladder on the outside of the building. You'd walk up and go to what we would think is like a covered porch upstairs, and that's going to be the upper room. It's all set up in the evening time. And Jesus, now you connect the dots from the Gospel of John, John 13. This is where they come up. Jesus is going to wash their feet when they enter. And that incredible demonstration of love, servant leadership. And then at some point, they're going to dine. They're going to partake of this Passover meal. This is going to become the Jerusalem headquarters for Jesus and the disciples the rest of the way. This is where they're going to stay. And only John's gospel, though, gives us incredible details as to what happened in what is the most important night of these men's lives, these disciples up to this point. Because this is where Jesus gives us what's called the upper room discourse which is about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And you only find it described in the section of John's Gospel, chapter 13 through 16. Our women are studying this now in our ladies' group, Abiding in Christ. Wish I was there for all of that, because Jesus is going to tell them something really heavy duty. He says, I'm going away. I'm going away, but I'm leaving you in my place. A teacher, a counselor, a comforter a lawyer of sorts, and that is the Holy Spirit. And then all this is capped off by the high priestly prayer in John 17, just before he's arrested. So he not only, the Lord is preparing these disciples for the Passover, he's preparing them for the fact that he's the Passover lamb, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5. And the disciples set out, they went to the city, found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. What did that entail, preparing the Passover? Because the room was ready, the table was set, there'd be cushions for them to recline on. We talked about they would lean on their left elbow at this floor-length table height with their feet away from the table. That's all set up. And there's an order to this meal, like we have an order of service. This is why it's called a Seder. You've heard of Passover Seder? Seder literally means order. And the main course of the meal is the centerpiece of it, the Passover lamb, which, interestingly enough, had to be without blemish, without defects. And they would have unleavened cakes. It's like a flat bread, matzah, okay? 
and that would be eaten. It's just one of the elements that picture the experience of the Hebrews having to rush out of Egypt, which is the exodus, the exit. For instance, the bitter herbs that they would have, that pictured the bitter bondage of the Jews in slavery. And they would have four cups of mixed water and wine with it. And then they would intersperse that with the singing of the Hallel praises. Hallel praises. You, you can find those songs in your Bible in the book of Psalms, 113 to 118. And I think most of you by now, you know the story. You're pretty sure what the Passover represents as being the memorial day, the holiest day for the Jews because it marked God's rescuing or saving the Jews from slavery and death. It was the 10th and final plague of the 10 plagues. And that was the plague of death to all the firstborn of Egypt. Firstborn males. And we find in Exodus 12 and 13, the first instructions for the Passover, which entailed this, the sacrifice of a lamb, it would be slaughtered, the bones could not be broken, which is another prophecy for Christ. And then the angel of death, or the destroyer, would pass over every home, taking the lives of the male firstborn, except for those homes which had on the doorframe blood of the sacrificed lamb painted on it, put on it. The Lord would pass over those homes. So you could see the imagery of all that points really well to Jesus as our Passover lamb with his bloodshed on the cross. It's about rescue. This is about salvation. And again, God's plans of the old covenant, signs and symbols there pointing ahead to the substance of Christ in the new covenant, like Hebrews 9 talks about. The death or the blood, of, the blood of Christ once and for all, paying for the redemption, the purchase price, the redemption of sinners by faith. So what you see here, get this, it's important. The Passover supper is now transforming and transitioning into the Lord's Supper that we celebrate today. The Passover is going to end here for the redeemed. Put on a big pause, let's say, because the sacrificial system in the temple, the symbolism, the feasts, the festivals, they're done now for all intents and purposes after this Passover weekend. Why? They're no longer needed. And what I want to clarify again, Pastor George mentioned it in our music time, is they're really put on hold, really, until he returns and sets up his millennial kingdom. Ezekiel talks about it, Zechariah, as we heard this morning. And also verse 25, we'll unpack this verse in detail later, but Jesus gives us a clue. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And that means with all of us in the literal 1,000-year millennial kingdom where those feasts and festivals will be celebrated, but for what Christ did on the cross, rather than looking at the Passover from Exodus. You see the difference there? And there's a fascinating thing about God's sovereignty in all this that we just have to live with. The Jewish Talmud is like the big commentary for the Jews of the law, and uh, 
they describe the death of the Passover lamb of God being sacrificed to give life on the eve of the Passover. And yet, the Jews still, by and large, remain blind to the truth that Christ is their Messiah. In fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 writes, For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. You say, why don't Jews believe more in Christ? Because they can't. They're incapable of it. Until God decides otherwise to change their heart. I mean, the question in the Old Testament was always, where's the lamb? We've got to have the lamb. Where's the lamb? And the answer in the New Testament, John the Baptist gives, when Jesus was walking by and he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's why throughout eternity, our cry, our song is going to be, worthy is the lamb, just as we sing it. So, from the preparation of the passion, we're going to move to the prophecy of the Passion, starting in verse 17. When it was evening, Jesus came with the twelve. It's Passover time, last supper together. This is going to be the last meal they're going to share together before the cross and resurrection. And again, this meal between Jesus and his apostles, this is signifying the end of the Old Covenant Passion era for them and what is going to be known as the church age. The last supper now becomes the first communion. Look at verse 18. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, here it is. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? Is it I? First thing that occurred to me was a question. Why does he tell them this prophecy at this time in advance? Well, Jesus has a reason and a purpose for everything he says and does. He wants them to understand that this betrayal didn't catch him by surprise. Oops, didn't see that coming. The Judas thing. He is the sovereign son of God. And this is, a, this is not an easy thing, Jesus is saying. It's heavy. He says, truly, truly, or assuredly from the original language, seriously, one of you at this table sharing this meal with me is going to be what the Greek would say is going to deliver me, hand me over to the Jews and the Romans. In John 13, in fact, dramatically it says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit as he said that. In his humanity, our Lord was a bit anxious, agitated in making this prophecy of his passion. So here you get another insight. I want you to see that, a look at his humanity. Because we talked about this when we were in the Olivet Discourse, chapter 13. We were talking about the second coming, that not even the Son of God knew the day, the time, the hour when he would return, right? That was another example, as this is, of his holding back voluntarily some of his privileges as the Son of God to manifest more fully his humanity. And he does this throughout his ministry. You know what the shortest verse in all the Bible is? It's only two words. John 11. Jesus wept. When did he do that? He's just watching the reaction of his good friends, Mary and Martha, mourning over the death of his good friend, their brother, Lazarus. We knew he was hungry when he fasted, just like we would be. He was human in that regard. And in 24 hours from this Last Supper, 
he is going to feel the type of excruciating pain that you and I will never even imagine. And then we're going to see the anguish of the cross. And what is in front of him that same night when he prays in the garden. He is the God-man. And I think this is one of the best displays of the mysterious, amazing unity and humanity of Christ. You know, I was thinking about this when I was putting the message together Friday. It occurred to me that there's a good way to think about and talk about this union and his incarnation to people. I hadn't thought of it before. I would say something like this. Jesus is the hands and the feet of the head and the heart of God. Jesus is the hands and the feet of the head and the heart of God in the Trinity. And so, Jesus feels the weight of making this prediction, announcing this betrayal. And unfortunately, look, I know some of you, I've been through it, you may know what it means to be betrayed or suffer at the hands of a traitor, someone close to you, a friend, a family member. It's enormously painful, emotional thing. But I want to tell you that I don't think our pain compares with what he's going through here. Remember, Jesus is the perfect God-man. He was incapable of doing this to somebody, and now he's the victim of it. He's involved in the midst of it. And just think about it. It is mind-boggling to me still how a human being could live, eat, and breathe in the physical presence of God in the flesh for three years like Judas, follow him, serve with him, watch him, be able to talk with him every day, and then when it mattered most, reject him and turn him over for what? 30 pieces of silver. That's about $100 in today's value. I'm going to give up God for 100 bucks. Amazing how wicked the unredeemed heart of man really is and what he's capable of. But Jesus knows what is to come. I mean, they're like, what are you saying? What? What are you talking about? In fact, John adds, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke of. And then the NIV translates this really better than most translations and looking at the original Greek because really... The form, the structure has more the idea and the question, is it me? Surely you don't mean me. It can't be me. I mean, they're stressed. And of course, Peter, as only Peter can, he's the impetuous one in John's account. He asks straight out, Lord, who is it? Which one of these guys is the traitor? So I'm ready to go. Drop the gloves right here. And I think some of the others are just saying to Jesus, look, it can't be me, no way. Maybe it's this guy. Is it you? Is it you? I mean, it's got to be. I mean, they're just pointing fingers. And this is all part of the process of what has to happen as Christ is being offered as our once and for all sacrifice. It's a prophetic statement. In fact, this prediction, word for word, you can find it in Psalm 41, verse 9. And as a result, listen, we know it's a sovereign decision of our Lord. Because Jesus, back in John 6, said... Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He said that back in Galilee. We know who Jesus is talking about here, don't we? Who the traitor is, verse 20. He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. 
And this is the one whose name, his persona, is synonymous with what it means to be a traitor. In fact, in the dictionary, there should be a picture under the word traitor or betrayal, there should be a picture of Judas because he's the poster boy. Judas simply sold his soul to Satan. And how about the marker, the identification that Jesus gives sovereignly? Talk about providence at the supper table. He says at the exact moment he dips his bread into the bowl, into this, what they call a sop or a paste of uh, fruit and herbs, Judas is going to do it at the same time. And it happened. And John tells us the Lord even gives him the piece of bread in which to do it. I want you to turn to John 13 because this is where the Lord gives the green light to the betrayal that leads to his death. And I want to show you this here in the Upper Room Discourse as he connects some dots for us. John 13, verse 25. So that disciple, this is referring to the Apostle John. He was the one laying close to the Lord at his breast. He was very close to him. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he and he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, listen to this, Satan entered into him. He's possessed. Here. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. So this must have been a little quiet, almost a whispery conversation. In fact, some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Because remember, he was the treasurer of the ministry, the wicked guy. And so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. That's amazing. The disciples are going to connect the dots of who it was, by the way, just a few hours into the evening time when Judas shows up with the temple guards and Jesus is arrested. And then finally, the end of our text in Mark 14, verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. In other words, he does what he's going to do. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. That's an amazing verse for a ton of reasons. But in that first phrase, the Lord tells him, I know how hard it's going to be for me where I'm going, what I have to do where I'm going, which is the cross. But for Judas, it's going to be way worse. He tells them that Judas, the traitor, is under the curse of condemnation of judgment. That's the woe there. Essentially, Judas is a son of hell because he is the son of the devil. And so much so, it would have been better for him if he had never been born than to betray Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate sentence. You know, Job, other people over history, they've suffered so much in this life. You've heard this phrase before, I, I wish I'd never been born. That was a familiar Hebrew phrase. In fact, I was reminded of it just watching my all-time favorite movie that comes out every time this time of year, It's a Wonderful Life. And it's a wonderful movie, it is. And if you haven't seen it, you need to confess and repent. And, what, and the big line there is, one of the big lines there is from George Bailey, when his life and his family, everything is falling apart, and he thinks he's going to be more valuable dead than alive. And then his guardian angel says, okay, 
in response to his request, I wish I had never been born. And then the rest of the movie is his whole life, what happens if he had never been born. It's wild. But what our Lord is talking about here, we got to get serious. We have to talk about a doctrine that's among the most difficult to talk about in all of Scripture. It's not often talked about. It's not considered enough, which is the eternal torment of hell. It's a place. It's a real place. And Judas is in that place right now. And don't ever let anyone tell you differently that this place doesn't exist because Jesus talked about this place way more often than he talked about heaven. It's a place of fire and utter darkness at the same time. I don't know how that works, but that's what the Scripture said. It's a place where there's going to be wailing and gnashing of teeth for the damned forever. Why gnashing of teeth? Because when a Hebrew was really angry and despondent over a decision, guilty, they would, like we do, they would gnash their teeth together, grind their teeth. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, Jesus pictured the torment as it is. I want you to turn to Luke 16 so you can see this for a moment. Okay, Lazarus in this life was a poor man. He suffered much, but he was saved. He went to heaven, what they called Abraham's bosom at that time when he died. The rich man didn't make it. The rich man died as an unforgiven sinner. He's sent to hell. Hades here. Luke 16, 24. And he, the rich man, called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. It's so bad here. The suffering, the torment is so bad, he begs that someone would just warn his brothers still alive about this place. Pick it up in verse 27. And he said, then I beg you, Father, Abraham, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Makes it all the risen Christ. And the risen Christ, the investigation of the resurrection, by the way, has led many people to faith in Christ. But not everyone. Indeed, he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Yikes. The brothers won't even listen to a resurrected man and people still don't today. It's recorded right here. Never been disproven, that event. The people rejected Moses and the prophets, God's men and Judas, who did life with the very Son of God in the flesh. He would not listen to him. He would not obey him because his heart is desperately wicked and he was born with it and he is now living with it forever, spiritually dead, deaf, dumb, and blind. There is nothing worse than you and I, a human being, to contemplate an eternal life in hell. It's so bad, as much as the Scripture reveals, it, it, it can't reveal to us 
well enough what the torment is all about. It, it's indescribable. It's incomprehensible. I mean, it's so bad. Remember when Jesus warned those that would cause a child, a child in the faith, to sin. Jesus said it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That was a horrific metaphor for the Jews. For the Jews, drowning was the worst form of death. And Jesus is saying, picture someone with a boulder, because a millstone was a humongous rock that would be carried by the animals to plow the ground. Imagine that being hung around your neck and you're thrown into the ocean. And Jesus is saying, that worst form of death, or never even having been born at all, will pale in comparison to the torment and the judgment of eternal hell. Now, you or a friend you have, a loved one might say, Pastor, I'm not a traitor like Judas. I've heard people will suffer in various degrees of hell, which is true, and, and, and there's such a place, but that can't be me. Or you might get this objection, uh, I think hell is just a state of mind. It's like life on earth. You've heard the saying, hell on earth. Well, according to Jesus and all of God's word, the response to all of that is, nope. It's not it. Or, pastor, I believe in this big word, annihilationism. comes from the word annihilate, that we, our souls, the real rebellious me, is going to be annihilated, destroyed, just pff, snuffed out extinguished so i won't have to suffer forever well <clears throat> nice try that person would be wrong as the lord said in john 3 whoever believes in the son has eternal life whoever does not obey the son shall not see life eternally but the wrath of god remains on him the wrath of god his righteous anger falls on unbelievers forever. You say, really? Torment in hell forever? Eternally? Is that fair? People, you don't want what's fair. Fair is justice. You really want justice? Does anyone in this room, when you come face to face with God, do you really want justice or do you want grace and mercy? I don't want justice. I don't know about you. I don't want justice then. It sounds harsh. It has to be harsh. Because God is a perfect, holy, just judge. And we, he made us to live forever. So if we break his law, we have to be punished forever. It's perfectly logical. Jesus said of the unbelievers at the final judgment in Matthew 25, when he's separating the sheep from the goats, he said, and these, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That can't be more clear. Can't be debated. So we need to think, here's the challenge, folks. We need to think, rethink evangelism right now. Right now. We need in this day and age to think about our ones, as we've said before. We had our prayer guide. Who is that one person, at least for starters, among your family and friends that you know are going to face eternity without Christ? 
Who is that one at least that needs to turn to God and trust in Christ? We just need to be more intentional, I think, about sharing our testimony with people about how God saved us as witnesses. We've got to share our faith, the gospel, in the prayerful hopes that God's going to save some of these people while there's still time for them. I think disciple-making needs to be a refocus for us the rest of this year and into 2023. Because we love God's sovereignty, but we can't act like the frozen chosen. We can't. Because the Bible says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And there has to be a preacher and the feet of the gospel going out. Just God didn't need us, but he said you will be the vehicle for which people are saved. I could just zap them in the head and they're going to be saved, but I don't want to do it that way. God has a word and God has a people who speak. God's people have to speak the truth. I mean, it, there's many ways to make disciples. You could just join us in a couple of weeks. Just sing Christmas carols. Make a joyful noise. If you can't sing, hum. Okay? Hand out gospel tracts, visitors cards when we go and do that again. We need to get busy sowing seeds. See, the beautiful thing with sovereignty, as we've talked about many times, if you know what the Bible says, we sow and what? Sleep. Because God does the saving. You just have to sow. You just have to give the message. He does all the heavy lifting. He does the rest. He saves. God saves. That's what we sing. I love that. I don't have any pressure. I've told you before, I sleep well at night after I preach the gospel. You all are in his hands. It's not on me. I've just got to say it, and I get out of the way. This is your ball game. This is all about you, your kingdom. Only you can change hearts, right? And there are traitors out there today like Judas. They're still around. You may even know one or two, consciously or otherwise. They might profess Christ, think they're on their way to heaven. Judas probably thought that. And then trials like persecution comes, like what's coming in the future, and their hearts are going to be revealed at that time and the consequence that follows. I'll just give you here the end of the book, Revelation chapter 14. The language is very graphic as to what happens to those that will take the mark of the beast of the Antichrist. We talked about end time stuff recently, so I was drawn to this. In the middle of verse 9 of Revelation 14 says, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. That may be the most graphic verse about hell in all the Bible. Maybe. If you don't understand what a dire thing, what a serious thing it is we're talking about and the need to share with people, just meditate on Revelation 14, 9 through 11. Do we want, do we want people we care about to be poured full strength into the cup of God's anger? To be tormented 
with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb on Judgment Day. You know, have you ever been stuck in a situation before? Maybe this has happened to you beyond your control, delays, airplane, you're on an airplane, and uh, you're on the runway, and, you know, you've already taxied in, and there's some delay, and you feel like claustrophobic, you can't get out. Or maybe an elevator. I have to apologize to my wife. She has a fear of being stuck in an elevator, like a, no a number of us do. And you're know, like, oh, you know. Or maybe you're hunkered down in a building in a storm. Usually in those situations, you have a reasonable hope of rescue or escape. That's not possible when it comes to hell. Hell offers no means of escape, rescue, or relief. No way out ever. No get out of jail card. No second chances. There is a time for mercy, and when you die without Christ, the time of mercy is gone, and it's only a time of justice. You do the crime, you do the time. The time happens to be forever. So we can't be afraid to talk about this. We just got to get busy with it. So as I close, I do want to say this. It's important to say the events of this Passion Weekend, okay, are not cause for justification for hate, bigotry, prejudice, and anti-Semitism against the Jews, the nation of Israel, or its people. Because unfortunately, Jews in general have been blamed for killing Jesus. It's been popular in some circles to call Jews Christ killers. Even leaders in Christendom, the church over history, have done that through the centuries. The reformer Martin Luther had an anti-Semitic streak in his life towards the end. Not many of the first... Now, let me say this. Many of the first century Jews did reject their Messiah. The leaders did so, so did the people. They demanded his death. We're going to see that as we go further along here. But it was the Jews of that generation, living in that place, at that time, in that crowd, that wanted Jesus dead, and basically blackmailed Pilate into killing him. But that's no warrant for any one of us, or anyone we know, to brand all Jews as a race of Christ killers. Remember the Abrahamic covenant way back. What did God tell Abraham? Whoever blesses Israel, God will what? Bless them. Whoever curses Israel will be cursed. The truth of the matter is this. Look, Jew or Gentile, Anyone who rejects Jesus, God, and his gospel is an enemy of God, according to the New Testament. That's true of anybody. He's no respecter of persons. And God loves Israel. And one day, he's going to save what's left of that nation. We studied that in depth in the Olivet Discourse. And even now, Jesus is building his church of Jew and Gentile together. Gentile is anybody that's not a Jew. So let's have a word of prayer. We're going to have a few words of prayer. Lord, we pray in the Spirit now with all prayer and supplication. You would keep your church alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, those that don't know you. But make supplication, Lord, for the saints in this room who are in Christ 
that our words may be given to us by you as we open our mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for we are ambassadors and that we want to declare your word, your gospel, boldly as we ought to speak. I pray that our people are going to be praying for people in particular by name at a greater degree than they have before, starting with their ones, their family, and their friends. And Lord, I, I pray that they're going to pray for opportunities, the opportunity to speak the gospel, knowing that the Holy Spirit, if they are in Christ, will help them say what needs to be said. They don't need to fear, Lord. And I pray that someone in this room, Lord, who has been alerted to the future and what comes when you return, our Lord Jesus, I pray that someone in this room today will confess that they are a sinner, no matter how good they think they are, morally, relatively speaking. They will confess that they still have broken your law. Your word says in Romans 1 that anyone that does not give honor and thanks to God, the wrath, your wrath is on them. They are unrighteous. Even though they may appear righteous to so many. If we do not honor and give thanks to you, glory to you, we are in sin. Constantly. So may that person listening or others listening today, Lord, would make a turn to you, want to surrender their lives back to you, deny themselves, pick up a cross and die spiritually, to follow you, to trust in Jesus alone, by your grace alone, in Christ alone, by just faith alone, for the forgiveness of sins. We pray that would be the case today, in Jesus' name, amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.ChristComChurch.org. That's ChristComChurch.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage.